So I want to express my appreciation, express my appreciation to our Russian brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, sometimes when you get an opportunity to hear people, hear Christians from other cultures, you really wonder who is better off. You know, who really has, who really, uh, has the opportunity to grow closer to the Lord? I think many times we tend to think that uh, because of our materialism, because of our wealth, that we are, as Christians, better off in America. But sometimes I really kind of doubt that and question that, especially as it comes to our personal walk and relationship with the Lord. Well, I have a real challenge this morning, and the challenge is to follow Dr. MacArthur's wonderful message on holiness on Monday with a message that has to do with personalized scholarship today. Can you imagine that? Going from Isaiah to personalized scholarship. I don't know if any of you know this or not, but really the driving motto of the Master's College is a little slogan that says, personalized scholarship and personalized discipleship. And this particular summer, I had, an, I had an opportunity to do a lot of reading on the state of both education and higher education in the United States. A number of the books that I read, I would like to recommend to you if you have time to read. I, you probably don't, probably really totally consumed with your classwork, but some of the books that I had the privilege of reading this summer, probably the best one I read all summer was a book entitled The Content of Our Character by Shelby Steele, who is a black professor of English at San Jose State University. I feel it's probably the best book that has been written in recent years on the whole issue of race in America, and also as it applies to the college setting. Another really interesting book that I had the privilege of reading this summer was a book called Illiberal Education by Dinesh D'Souza, who is an Indian. East Indian, and that was also very helpful. And the, the other book that I read, and, I'm, and the reason I'm telling you this is because a lot of the information that I'm going to share with you this morning came from, from these books. The other book that I read that had made a major impact on my life this summer was a book entitled The Closing of the American Heart by Professor Ronald Nash, who has just retired uh, from Western Kentucky University. He was the chairman of philosophy there for over 25 years. And by the way, Dr. Nash will be our daily lecturer here uh, this spring. And these books really made a major impact on I me. Mean, I want to kind of, this morning what I want to do is I want to try to contrast what's going on in education in America as opposed to what we're trying to do here at the Master's College. As I've been here over the years, I've asked many students as to why they have come to the Master's College. And really you get all kinds of answers. Some are here, some of you are here because that's what's expected of you. That is, either your parents or your peers or your pastor or somebody really encouraged you to come to the Master's College. Others of you came here because you desire to have a successful career, to be educated so that you can move professionally into a particular field. Maybe some of you, some of you are here because you just simply want to get, get away from home. It's great to have the opportunity to move out of the house, to get some freedom, to kind of kick off the traces come down to sunny Southern California and kind of uh, maybe begin a new type of life. I've even heard some people say that uh, the reason they come to the Master's College is because they hope it's like nine months of Hume Lake, nice summer camp. I hope that's not the case. Some of you are here because you desire to get a year's training in biblical studies before continuing your education elsewhere. And frankly, some of you don't know why you're here, but we're glad to have you anyway. 
Now, as I said a moment ago, there is a real difference between secular higher education and the education here at the Master's College. And I would say the greatest difference is simply this, that in a secular college or university setting, those universities and colleges do not have the ability to address, number one, values, or number two, to address ethics in any uniform way. You might move into one aspect of the university or into one major and get a whole different view of values than you would in a different area of that same university. They cannot really deal in a uniform way with questions like, why should a person act a certain way? or treat others in a certain way, or who or what informs individual relationships. And the reason for this simply is this, young people, secular institutions are characterized by a plurality, if you will, of worldviews, a, a plurality of worldviews. And today in American higher education, there are really three prevailing worldviews that permeate our educational institutions. The first one is relativism. The first one is relativism. Alan Bloom, the author of The Closing of the American Mind, states this. There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. That truth is relative. Now let me give you a definition of relativism, if I might. A relativist or relativism simply means this, there is no such thing as truth or right, but only the varying beliefs of varying cultures. That is, there are no fixed norms, only shifting opinions. Let me say that again. There are no fixed norms, only shifting opinions. Relativism. The second major movement is positivism. Positivism. Positivism simply means this, that the only kind of reality and truth is the kind revealed by, by and verifiable in terms of positive science. If it cannot be proved by the scientific method, it is not true. It is not factual. It is the belief that human knowledge cannot be extended beyond what can be discovered by use of the scientific method positivism. And then thirdly, the one that you're most familiar with as a student would be secularism, naturalism, humanism. All kind of combined into one. Secularism, naturalism, and humanism. That simply overall means this. Human life can be lived and understood in its own terms without regard to any higher order of reality. All you need is the horizontal level of life. That gives you understanding for everything. That is, without regard to God. There is no supernaturalism of any kind. God does not exist. Man is the measure of all things, if you will. And this is first seen in what I, in what I would call secularism. And secularism is simply this, the rejection of the sacred. Okay? The rejection of the sacred. God, the Bible, supernaturalism is dismissed. Something not to be considered. 
Secondly, naturalism simply means this, that nothing exists outside the material, mechanical, and natural order. Nothing exists beyond the material, mechanical, and natural order. That is, the universe is a closed, self-explanatory system. Now listen, folks, if you understand that, that really helps you to understand why the environmentalist movement is absolutely sweeping this country today. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the supernatural, then what is left? It is only the material, the mechanical, and the natural order. Those are the things that become of utmost importance to an individual. An environmentalist, once again, usually is the one who believes that nature literally becomes God, that rocks are as important as human beings, if you will. Why? It's very logical when you understand that if that's all there is, then that's what you're putting your hope and faith in, naturalism. And then thirdly, humanism. Humanism is the regard that the universe regards the universe as self-existing and not being created. That is, worship and prayer are replaced by a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. And that's really obvious to you. See that totally sweeping our culture. I mean, you can go into a Christian bookstore, you can go into a, sex, into a, into a, a, a secular bookstore, and what are you going to find? You're going to find all kinds of books on personal self-help, on personal betterment. Why, once again? Because if man is truly the measure of all things, and then all truth begins with man, what else is there to study but man himself? Young people, today in the United States of America, man worships at his own shrine. Man worships at his own shrine. William Henley during the time of the First World War, penned this particular poem called Invictus. And one line of it goes like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That sums up in one precise statement what humanism is. And the problem with that is that this particular philosophy or movement has no ability to address the spiritual part of one's being. And that is precisely the greatest problem in education in America today, whether it's elementary school, whether it's secondary, or whether it's higher education. It is the inability to address the spiritual part of one's being. So what has all this produced in America today? What, have, what has been produced by higher education in America who have trained our teachers to go back into the public schools of America and teach today? What kind of a product is this philosophy and are these movements turning out? Let me give you some illustrations. First of all, let's look at functional illiteracy. Functional illiteracy. Chester Finn from Vanderbilt University, in a particular study that he did, found out these astonishing statistics. Only 5% of 17-year-olds can read well enough to understand and use information found in technical materials, literary essays, and historical documents. Only 6% can solve multi-step math problems and use basic algebra. Carl Shapiro, the University of, University of California, Davis, says this. These are not Christians. What is really distressing is that this generation cannot and does not read. I am speaking of university students 
in what are supposed to be our best universities. Their illiteracy is staggering. We are experiencing a literary breakdown which is unlike anything I know of in the history of letters. Amazing statement. Another piece of information. In 1910, one out of a thousand people in Massachusetts was illiterate. Did you hear that? In 1910, one out of a thousand people in Massachusetts was illiterate. Boston Globe, March 11th, 1984. 40% of the adults in Boston were functionally illiterate. And you don't think we have a crisis in this country? Secondly, cultural illiteracy. Cultural illiteracy. A cultural illiterate is one that is deficient in his understanding of the basic terms and concepts that a person needs to function properly in our society. Let me give you some illustrations of this. Once again, in a study done by Diane Radovich and Chester Finn, they did a study, what do American 17-year-olds know? 31.9% did not know that Columbus discovered the New World. 40% didn't, didn't, know, didn't know the date of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. 75% could not place Lincoln's presidency within the correct 20-year span. 33% could not locate France on a map. Here's a good one. At an East Coast university, a prize athlete was being tutored in hopes of prolonging his athletic eligibility. The tutor asked the athlete to name the country immediately south of the United States. His answer, Canada. No, said the tutor. Let me give you a hint. The people speak Spanish. The athlete's eyes brightened and recognition appeared on his face. Ah, the country must be Spain. We laugh at that, but it's pitiful. It's an absolute indictment upon the educational establishment in this country. And why? Because we have eliminated culture from the curriculum and re now listen to this, and replaced it with an emphasis on learning skills. Now I know a lot of you are headed to, for, to be teachers. And let me tell you something. You need your classes in methodology and how to teach reading and how to teach math. But let me tell you this. If you have no content to offer those students, I don't care how much methodology you have. You're not going to benefit those young people one bit. And the problem with the educational establishment in America today is precisely that in all the universities, they teach nothing but methodology. And basically, the teachers go into the classroom. They're functionally illiterate and they're culturally illiterate. So what do you think is going to happen to the students? Lastly, moral illiteracy. It's a quote once again from Ron Nash. College students complain that their college offers them no first principles of morality, no ethical direction, no aspiration towards enduring truth. You see, young people, no wonder the universities in America face major problems like alcohol abuse and date rape. You see, they have nothing, they have nothing to tell the American young people about their soul, about their spirit. They cannot address those issues. Here is the, supposedly the greatest educational system in the world, not addressing because of the 
the philosophies that are taught there not addressing the basic issues of mankind. Who am I? Where am I going? What am I called to do? Who do I worship? Now contrast this, if you will, with the worldview that we propose here at the Master's College. At the Master's College, we place God rather than man at the center of the universe. God in Christ, for us, is ground zero. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You might open your Bibles to John 1.1 if you might. John says this in the first verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, young people, listen to me. Whether it's in Genesis or whether it's in the Gospel of John, both Moses and John begin with the beginning that has no beginning. Did you hear that? Both Moses and John begin with the beginning that has no beginning. You see, because for them, without God, there is nothing. And what also fascinates me and has fascinated many people who have studied the Gospel of John in the New Testament and the Gospels, is John is the only writer to use the term Logos as a name for Christ. John is the only New Testament author to use the word Logos as a name for Christ. Now, I want to explore this in relation to what we, what we believe our philosophical base here is at the Master's College, okay? I want you to just really stick with me. This is going to be a little difficult, but I want you to really listen carefully, Okay? Logos was a key term in Greek philosophy. It was really used by the Stoics, who were one of the two major philosophical groups in ancient Greece. You had the Stoics and the Epicureans. As you well know, Logos means word. Logos means word. But let me, let me try to tell you and paint a picture for you what this meant in Greek thought. Then we can bring it here into the scripture. In Greek thought, Logos means the reason or the expression of thought in words or speech. Let me give you that again. Reason or the expression of thought in words or speech. That is, for the, for the Greeks, it was the rational, hear this, it was the rational principle of the universe. The rational principle of the universe. The Stoics believed that the universe was permeated by this logos. Okay? They believed, they believed as pagans. That the universe was permeated by this logos, i.e., eternal reason. And for the, for the Stoics, this gave expression to their deep conviction of the rationality or order of the universe. Okay? So when a Stoic looked at the universe, he saw reason and he saw order. And the word that came to mind when he saw that was the word logos. Now let's bring that back then to John 1.1. 1, 1. What is John then saying to us today? What was he saying to the first century church? Listen to me. God in Christ is not only being, but he is the meaning of everything. Christ is the meaning of everything. He is the ultimate reason for all being. Do you hear that? Jesus Christ is the ultimate reason for all being. And you see, John's Logos is very different from the Stoics' impersonal Logos. And we see that in John 1.1. Let me take you through this very quickly. Look what it says. In the beginning was the Logos, 
And the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. So whoever this Lagos is, this Lagos was with God and was God. Now let's find out who John is talking about here. You see, John, unlike the Greeks, is not talking about an idea. He's not talking about something nebulous. He's talking about a person. And let's find out who this person is. Go over to verse 14, if you will, the first of chapter 1. And the word was made flesh. Okay, the Lagos has now been made flesh. The Lagos was with God and was God. Now the Lagos is made flesh. This Lagos was not only made flesh, but dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. You know what that's talking about, obviously. Who was with Christ on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John, all right? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now watch this full of grace and truth. So we now know the Lagos is full of grace and truth. Let's take it a step farther. Okay? Now, look at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, and here comes the answer, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The Lagos in verse 1 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 17. And you see, here's the difference, young people. The Stoics' Lagos is impersonal. The Christian's Lagos is personal. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives us all meaning to the entire universe, to every single created thing. How do I know that? Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 19. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? Now watch this. For by him were all things, what? Created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or things were created. All things were created by him and for him. There it is. The Logos is none other than the creator of the universe. You see, now people listen to me. Human beings do not create meaning. Human beings do not create meaning. Let me give you some examples. Newton did not create gravity. What did Newton do? He discovered a meaning built into the universe by Christ himself. How about Johann Kepler, the great Polish astronomer? Kepler said this, that it was the scientist's task just think of this. Just think how things have changed. It was the scientist's task to think God's thoughts after him. What a change in philosophy. A task to think God's thoughts after him. And beloved, listen to me, young people. That is the challenge for you and for me as a Christian. To think God's thoughts after him. That is what a Christian education is all about. And because of that, this view brings unity for, Christian, for the Christian to education. You see, since God in Christ is the author of all being, and he is the author of all meaning, and since we are created in his image, which includes the ability to think and to reason, everything in the created universe is open to study. Whether it's science, whether it's mathematics, whether it's history, whether it's literature, whether it's God himself, as well as human beings. You see, that's the most liberating concept there is. 
that since God created everything and gives meaning to everything, there is nothing that a Christian has to fear about learning in any of these areas. People, listen to me. The Christian has nothing to fear in the pursuit of truth. Did you hear that? The Christian has nothing to fear in the pursuit of truth. Listen, when you came to the master's college, we did not perform a frontal lobotomy on you. Okay, we didn't come here and tell you we're going to indoctrinate you. We don't want you to think. We don't want you to be challenged. We just want you to regurgitate back to us what we tell you. The reason I say that, folks, is simply this. Ron Nash also talks about this in his book. And he says this, one of the great weaknesses of fundamentalism, listen to this, is an unlimited evangelical propensity for super spirituality and anti-intellectualism. Did you hear that? An unlimited evangelical propensity for super spirituality and anti-intellectualism. Now hear me. There is absolutely nothing wrong with a proper emphasis on spirituality. But what must be abandoned is a thoughtless, mindless type of otherworldliness that denigrates the importance of truth. And that's really, frankly, one of the great caricatures of much of the evangelical and fundamental church over the past 50 years. It's because we don't understand science, we have to fear it. Because we don't understand history, we have to fear it. Because we don't understand literature, we have to fear it. Now hear me on this. Even the unsaved, did you hear that? Even the unsaved, because they are created in the image of God and therefore are rational, can understand truth around them. That's why you don't all read just textbooks in your classes written by Christians. Listen to what John Calvin said. John Calvin writes about the amazing insight of profane authors. Did you hear that? The amazing insight of profane or secular non-Christian authors. Folks, listen to me. Unbelievers have the ability to understand truth with a small t. That is, they can understand an awful lot about the natural phenomena, about science, about mathematics, about history and literature. Their biggest problem is they don't have any concept of the capital T, which is truth with a capital T, which is God himself. And you see, that is the element that we bring to your education here at the Master's College. Another issue that ties into this, as I mentioned in the very beginning, our little slogan, personalized scholarship, is the whole issue of size as well. I don't have to tell you that size in any organization produces depersonalization. That is, assembly lines. And the finest institutions today, most, under, most undergraduates sit in classes of three to 500 and are taught by TAs. I don't know if you saw this or not in the LA Times two weeks ago. Cal State University Northridge, first round of registration. Students that signed up for five classes received only two. It took students as long as two weeks to register at CSUN. Today now, because of the crush and the lack of, of, of both facilities and the lack of, of classes being offered, it now takes the average student going through either the UC system 
or the, C, or, or, the, or the CSU system five to six years to graduate. That's not without working. And the reason is they can't get their classes. Size and depersonalization. You see, another thing that a Christian worldview should bring to a campus like this, like this is simply that a student is a person. And this stems from the belief that Christianity is personal. I'm reminded of, of, the, of, of the account in, in John 4. Remember when Christ encountered the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? He spent time with her. He talked to her. He dialogued with her. You see, he had a personal concern for that woman's life. Christ ministers to individuals. He addresses their needs. He addresses their hurts. And he addresses their problems. So therefore, scholarship must be personal. You know, it's really interesting how even in the secular world, this is catching on. Some years ago, Tom Peters, who, who, who teaches in the, in the graduate program at Stanford in business, wrote a book, and the name of the book was called The Power of Excellence. And Peters said basically in that book that the companies that were really moving ahead again in America were companies that put the people and not the system first. Did you hear that? The companies that put the people and not the system first. And what Peters basically did is he came up with what he called the inverted pyramid. Now, if you've ever seen a pyramid, you know that's, that's what characterizes most business enterprises in America. You know, you've got the board of directors, you've got the president, you've got all these guys up in these suites making all these decisions, you've got middle management, then you've got all, the, all, the, you know, all the, the foot soldiers down here in the bottom that are doing the dirty work, okay? That's the way corporate America has worked for years. And the way it simply works is all the guys at the top get all the benefits, all the people at the bottom are the ones that are walked on. I said, no, no, no. The successful corporation is the corporation that inverts the pyramid. That the board of directors and the president and the executives, their main job is to make the people on the front line better in what they do. Because it's the people at the front line that are going to bring in the profits for the company. Hey, did Tom Peters just pluck that out of the air? Hey, that is good old gospel preaching. That's precisely the model that is taught in the New Testament. It is the model of Jesus Christ that he taught in John chapter 13. The model of servanthood. The model of washing one another's feet. So you see, you can take a biblical principle, totally secularize it. Will it work? Absolutely. And so the key for us, once again, in a Christian college is we need to operate on the principle of the inverted pyramid. We are here more... The primary reason why we are here is to help you grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to get the kind of education that you can use in order to honor and glorify Him when you leave here. You're not here for us. You're not here to lift us up. You're not here to, you know, to make our jobs easier. It's exactly the opposite. The inverted pyramid. Let me draw this to a conclusion, if I might. Young people, listen. We give you an opportunity to begin or to become an educated Christian. Did you catch that third word? We give you an opportunity. Sixth word, an opportunity. See, all you have before you is an opportunity. You hear me? We cannot guarantee you an education. We cannot make you learn. We cannot make you grow in Christ. We can give you that opportunity. We can give you that kind of nurturing situation that will allow you to do that if you take advantage of it. But we cannot do that for you. 
Let me give you some things that might help in this area. First of all, be a learner. That's just another word for being a disciple. Be a learner. Now, let me put another phrase on this. Be a learner. Do not be a confirmer. Be a learner. Do not be a confirmer. You see, because of our fallenness, we tend to be confirmers. That is, we do not want to be challenged or stretched. We literally want to be confirmed many times in our own ignorance. Don't tell me anything that upsets me. Don't tell me anything that forces me to think. Don't tell me anything that challenges what, I've already, what I already believe. Let, you just confirm everything I already have. You understand now why ignorance is bliss? Because it really is. And yet so many students come in that mold. And frankly, so many people in the church are exactly like that. It drives you crazy. People don't want to grow. They don't want to be stretched. They just want to stay in their safe little cocoon and hear the same things they've heard for 25, 30, 40, and 50 years. Why? Because they're safe in their ignorance. Secondly, be a steward. First, be a learner. Secondly, be a steward. That is a manager of the time and resources that God has graciously given to you. I don't know who's paying your way to the college. Maybe your parents are. Maybe the state is. Maybe your grandparents are. Maybe you had to work for it. You understand as a steward, as a manager, you have a responsibility to those people and even to yourself to use your time wisely. One of the, one of the things that really amuses me around any college, and it's the same here, is the glee in the students' eyes and, and just their glee when you say you're going to let class out 10 minutes early. You know, if you're a good, stu if you're a good steward or manager of your time, what ought, what ought you ought to be saying? Give me the last 10 minutes. You know, I want to get everything I can get out of this class. Be a steward. Thirdly, hear me on this one, young people. Make your studies an act of worship. Did you hear me? Make your studies an act of worship. Make your studies an act of worship. Why? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. One of, the, one of the real traps you can fall into is living your life in a dichotomized way, separating out the sacred from the secular. My homework is secular. Going to church, Bible study, discipleship, that's sacred. That is a false dichotomy, young people. That is taught nowhere in Scripture. Everything you do, every activity you're involved in, has a spiritual dimension to it. And never forget it. You, your studies can be, if, if you're doing it in the right, for the right reasons and for the right motivation, can be every bit a, a much, as much of an offering to God as anything else you can do. Fourthly, take advantage of the faculty. Be a disciple. Latch on to somebody. Latch on to one of your favorite teachers. Go sit in their office. Ask them questions. Dialogue with them. Learn at their feet. And fifthly, see this whole period of your life, young people, as a time of preparation. I know you get uneasy. I know you get jittery. I know that sometimes you say, why am I spending four years doing this when I can be out making a living? Let me just remind you of some things. Look at Moses. Moses not only had a great secular education in Egypt, but God gave him another education that lasted 40 years before he could be used. 
Look at Samuel's education under the feet of Eli. Look at Daniel's education as it related both to serving in the temple in Judah and then the, the other education that he got serving in the court at Babylon. Look at Peter's education, three years at the feet of Christ. Look at Paul's education, raised as a Pharisee, understanding all of the Jewish law, all the Jewish traditions, and then God setting him aside for another three years in the wilderness. That's where you are right now, young people. You're in that period of life where God is setting you aside to train you and mold you for that calling that he desires of each of you. Don't get jittery. Don't get uneasy. Take advantage of this one and only opportunity that you will have in your life. And as a result of this, my hope would be this, that we would be able to produce here students who are competent in their chosen fields. And I want to say something to the gals right now. I know many of the gals here really desire to be homemakers, to raise a family, to be a godly wife. But let me tell you something, gals, don't forget this. A liberal arts education would be one of the greatest assets of your home. Nothing brings greater delight to a home than to have a mother who can read to her children great literature, talk to them about history, bring music into the home. These are tremendous assets that, that add greatly to family life. The great, one of the greatest callings in the world to be, today is to be a godly mom. And so many gals don't under, cannot connect a liberal arts education to what's going to go on in the home. That's absolutely not true. What you can bring to the home because of your education is absolutely staggering. Secondly, students who are committed to meeting the needs of others, as Christ did. Thirdly, students who have a purpose for living that goes beyond self-gratification, self-indulgence. Their goal is to live for Christ and to live for others. People, listen. You have a wonderful privilege. You realize that less than 20% of your fellow citizens in this country have ever graduated from college. You have a great privilege that God has given to you. And when you cut that down in terms of a Christian perspective, then you ought to be so thankful for the privilege that God has given you to be here. Listen, folks, take advantage of this gift. This is really a gift of God. You're only going to have one chance in your life to do this. I know from personal experience. When I was going through college as a young person like you, I had no goals. My freshman and sophomore years, you might as well have written them off academically. And you know, I paid a really heavy price for that. Because it wasn't until I finally matured and decided to go back to school when I was 29 years of age that God finally gave me some goals and, and, and some reasons for moving on in my education. And I really wasted five or six years. I literally flunked out of college as a sophomore. And God was gracious to me enough, like Jonah, to give me a second chance. And so I'm telling you from experience today, take advantage of this wonderful gift that God has given to you. Take advantage of the wonderful gift of the faculty and the staff that God has given to you. You are a steward, and someday you will be held accountable for the resources that God has given to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to share these few thoughts about a Christian higher education. And we're so thankful, Father, that we are not tossed to and fro because we have no value base or no ethical base. We're thankful this morning that you, through your son Jesus Christ, are really the author of everything. 
that you not only created the world, but you have given the world its total meaning. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid to persevere in any area of intellectual endeavor. I just pray for these students, Father, you help them not to become discouraged. Help them to understand that in their academic life, your Holy Spirit is there to help them, to guide them, to challenge them, to encourage them. I pray, Father, that we as a faculty and we as a staff might be willing to move quickly into the lives of our young people to really encourage them and to do everything we can to move them along in their walk towards Christ-likeness. We thank you for this time this morning again. In Christ's name, amen.